This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix and helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to episode 56 of InsureTech Insider, coming to you from our 11FS recording studio in Finsbury Avenue. Today, I am back with my co-host, Nigel Walsh. Nigel, how are things with you? Ho, ho, jolly ho. Okay, they're very good. I can't wait for Christmas. I'm like an 11-year-old. Getting very excited. I'm very, I'm very, I love this time of year. It's amazing. Have you insured your Christmas presents? No. Oh, well... Well, I'm not sure, quite ready for Christmas, I'm then, are you? I'm sure my insurer is up the limit automatically for this time of year, as they all do. Okay. Um, On today's show, we are going to share our predictions for the insurtech industry in 2020. And we are not alone. We're joined by fantastic guests who have their own predictions, um, and they're all making much welcomed returns. So first up, we have Leah Noninger, Research Analyst at Business Insider. Welcome back, Leah. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Anytime. Thank you for coming back. Uh, We also have Dylan Bourguignon, CEO at Social. Lovely to have you two back. Wonderful being here. Thanks so much. And last, by no means least, we have David Venick, co-founder and CEO at Anorak. Thank you for coming back, David. How are you? I'm fine. Hello. I was just saying, we have a very European show today with three European guests, and Nigel and I are representing the Brits. Irish. Okay, let's not go into that. Let's not go into your heritage again. I've got passport still. Okay. Four European guests. Three and a half. (laughs) Let's get on with the show. This week, we've asked our guests to share their personal industry predictions for 2020. Nigel and I also have some of our own. And on this show, we're going to discuss what we think are going to be the biggest industry trends, what changes we're going to see, as well as who is going to do what. I'm going to read out each person's prediction, and then I'm going to throw it out for the panel to discuss. So let's get started. And I'm going to start with my predictions, um, host's prerogative. So uh, my first prediction is that we're going to see more large financial institutions working with insurtechs and actually getting things to market rather than just cautious investments or pilots. So um, this is uh, probably quite a safe prediction, actually. But I think we've sort of reached the tipping point now where so many of the large insurers, um, banks, uh, you know, reinsurers who've spent a lot of time and effort running long pilots, spent a lot of money on investing um, in startups, will actually start to utilize those in products that will be available to customers. That doesn't necessarily just mean like customer facing products either. You know, I think we're starting to see more people um, looking at how they can bring in third party software and third party providers to help them uh, improve their own products, their own customer facing products. Agree? Disagree? I think that falls into the, as you said, no surprise Sherlock category. And I think the Trove example and Scott from the last show is a good example of many of the insure techs, and David, you'll probably agree as well, that key here is still distribution. Unless you've got that through a channel and through a customer base, it is blinking well hard. So I I don't disagree with you one bit on that. I think I, I would just pin it uh, differently. I think the, the insure tech that are weak will die faster. <laughs> yeah, well, there is that as well, I mean. And in fact, the incumbents are very happy to work with the ones that are long established, but I don't think it's easier to work with live carriers or with big groups. I, I think I find it very, very difficult. And I don't find them very um, engaging and, and aware, I shouldn't say that, but I think it's still very slow. 
And I think it's going to be very slow next is, year. Is that well. is that because they is that because of a lack of willingness, or is that because of a lack of understanding, or is it processes, or is it the dreaded P word procurement? I think it's just DNA and uh, and the way they do business. I think things are happening, but I don't think they're going to be faster. Cultural. It's part of them trying to hang you out to the dry and literally go. We really want to work with you, but here's my twelve month runway to do so. Probably, probably. Um, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's actually about culture. I agree. I agree with you. Yeah, but I don't think there is any reason why it, it goes faster. I wouldn't be so harsh as to say that it's the weak will be left behind and die. Um, I think that it's another whole debate, the debate, but it's about the funding and availability. Yeah, that's my point. Um, and that's not necessarily yeah. making that the startup was was weak. It's just that the funding environment wasn't able to support it during a um, a growth period that does require time. Um, I mean, this 12-month runway to uh, of their process is a perfect example. I mean, 18, 24 months remains a kind of ballpark figure from first conversation to finally launch POC. That does mean that it's quite slow. But what, what I mean, I think my point is, to be clear, not that it's going to get faster, but we're at the point now where some of those 12 to 18 months POCs are coming to fruition. So it's, they've been going for long enough that we're actually now at the point where some of them, and not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but we're actually going to start to see some, you know, actually, you know, seeing benefits or seeing results. If so I'm predicting that they are effectively going to basically finally start pop to the market if I was going to burst into my best Scott Galloway impression I'd be going what the hell is taking everyone so long why have we got no urgency in this place not this place but this industry I guess Leah, did, did you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, I actually saw some data about like life and health insurtechs and there's been like an uptick in B2B insurtechs in that space getting funding so I feel like we might actually see some more partnerships in that area in particular which could be interesting. Yeah, I think the B2B insurtechs people have sort of woken up to those of, of, over the last 12 months or so. We saw a lot of money going into sort of distributors and, and, and brokers and I think we're starting to see some money coming back. And also people realising that startups that have got funding and do interesting things can also be applied to insurtech. You don't have to be an insurer to be useful to the insurance. If industry. there's one build on it though, so back to the partnerships, then you, maybe you follow the same route FinTech did and say, actually folks like... Um, Zigo, who came out with, um, got their own license and basically said, we'll do it ourselves, thanks very much. Which I think is the same route the banks and fintechs did early on. They said, let's partner, oh, that's too slow, let's go, to, let's go on, our, on our own. I mean, this isn't, I suppose, this isn't the forum for it, but we, we have talked quite extensively about how much harder it is to do that than it is as an insurer than it is as a fintech. But I'm going to move me on to my second present, uh, presentation. Prediction. I'm not actually presenting, though I do do a lot of that. No slides today. Um that's that incumbent insurers are starting to look at how they update their own technology stacks. So this, we do, I do a lot of work with uh, banks at 11FS and the core banking revolution, as they call it, has well and truly hit home. Like over the last 12 months, we have seen a load of core software providers come to market. And we've reached a point in uh, the banking industry where we've had what we call the core banking revolution. And um, there are a huge number of uh, software providers coming to market um, who are offering core banking technology to those, those banks but they are, there's enough traction and enough business for them to actually survive and, and get customers and, and, and really you know, start making a move. And I think banks have woken up to the fact that you can't just keep buying the same old software time after time and assuming the same old way is going to work, that they really are realizing the need to, to have a look at those back-end systems and try and sort those out before they can actually innovate 
properly. Um, and whilst I do think that the insurance industry is further behind, I think that they might get to this step quicker, largely because of the sheer state of a lot of their back-end processes. I think they're being forced into looking for alternatives um, because, because of just how much they've got going on. Who wants to go first? You, Nigel, you're speaking. You I, go first. So I go first. So I, so I don't agree with you on this one, only because having spent the last 15 years helping insurers change their core system, and they have, it, this is the painting the first or fourth bridge. And for those not listening in the UK, it means once you finish the paint job, you go back to the very beginning and start all over again. I feel this is, or was at least, the never ending task that's always there. And in fact, I remember some of the first clients I worked with and putting in new platforms for those guys and now taking it out and replacing it. Yeah, but my point is that the realisation that that can't carry on, that they need to think of something different, right, is okay. what's going to, the penny's going to drop. Like they can't just keep patching and updating and patching and updating. They have to rethink this process. Yeah, and I think technology's moved on enough to go, let's not go from a legacy mainframe, which was actually, and they're still running out there. I think we've been talking about the death of the mainframe for 30 odd years, but they're the most stable and they still work. Um, through to core platforms like Duck Creek and Guidewire and all the big ones out there through to now the mid-tier platforms and the startups. And I just think maybe the startups are geared up with microservices or whatever else to do a better job, which gives them the agility they want going forward that you wouldn't have got maybe 10 years ago. I mean, that's what we've seen elsewhere, so... But you get fired for hiring Guidewire as opposed to a startup. Not one bit. Exactly. Eight out of the top 10 carriers in the UK have already moved to core platforms from large carriers, or sorry, large technology providers. But for me, they're never the only answer. They're always an and as opposed to an or. And many of these folks, if you go through all of the uh, top 10 UK personal line or even commercial line carriers, will have a core platform from someone like Guidewire or Duck Creek or a tier one provider and lots of other things as well. You, very few people have one core platform. And I think, to be fair, that's what you do see in banking as well. Increasingly, you see modular systems. So you can have plug and play. I was thinking of them a bit like Lego, but like you can, you know, put blue blocks on red blocks on white blocks. Mm. So next up, we have Leah's predictions. So the first one um, is that insurance will become more predictive with the help of IoT devices, um, triggered by more natural disasters that risk making insurance either unaffordable for consumers or unsustainable for insurers. Could you give us a bit more on that, please, Leah? Yeah, so I feel like natural disasters are becoming more and more prominent, and this is really affecting the insurance industry. And I feel like there's two ways that insurers can kind of react to this. One is with IoT devices that can predict a natural disaster, such as a flood with like rising um, water levels and predicting a bus pipe or anything like that. But then there's also a way of like becoming more predictive um, and helping um, helping their consumers file claims um, when when something happens. So when the, with the California wildfires, for example, I know that Hippo kind of reached out to his customers before um, they could even reach out themselves, which I feel like insurers will really have to do. And that will um, help to enhance the customer experience and make them really better compete with the insurtechs. So proactivity. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else? No, I would agree. And I think uh, insurers are moving to being partners rather than just uh, claim managers. And uh, yeah, that's a good news. Why is it taking them so long, though? Because we can do all this. We've been able to do this for a long time. Back to your point on speed. What's stopping them do that today? You've got flood flash, you've got storm pieces, uh, a gazillion startups in that space that can do some really cool things. Probably partly their legacy processes still, that they're still struggling to innovate. Like they have all these ideas and all the research, but it's still hard to get that together with the policies and everything. 
Isn't that a cultural element? Well, I think that's. I, mean, I was just about to say yeah. it's exactly what we talked about in the first point. It's it's cultural. Like you know, of course they can do that. We we've been able to do. We've been able to you know change core banking, mm-hmm. uh, core insurance systems for have along as well. You know, it's it's definitely cultural. The the the, the philosophy isn't to um, be rushing out to pay claims. That tends not to be the. Um, Although the first thing that an insurer thinks about, but what if it was? That is, what if it became? But that is what they are actually paid to do. That is but exactly parametrics why here. So parametrics are a perfect example of where you go into wildfire, floods, hurricane, all those sorts of good things. And parametric using technology, IoT, and all those good things could say, "Hey, this has happened." Or if you had a your glass was cracked on your windscreen, and we can sense it, why not just get it all booked in automatically? Okay, but you actually, the thing is, many of these things don't even need parametric. I mean, when the, when a kind of a flood comes in, you know that you know the, the flood levels are pretty obvious. You just turn on the TV and find out what the weather forecast looks like. Um, and, and the same thing for any kind of major uh, uh, kind of hurricane or anything. So I, I don't think you actually need technology for that. It's really a cultural thing needing to be done. And by the way, getting IoT, it's all very well, but who's actually going to be implementing that IoT? I mean, people do not trust insurers. So why on earth were they actually? turn their home into Big Brother house or their car into Big Brother car. Who is this Dylan? Can we have the real Dylan back, please? This is ridiculous. I think it's, I think uh, to a certain extent I agree with you, but I think it depends on the device. So I think when you're talking about microphones and cameras, then yes, people are very sceptical. But if it's a small device that detects whether there's water in your home, whether you've got a burst pipe, I think that's very different. And I think if my insurer was like, look, we want to to put this device on your your stopcock or or like, you know, the outside of your house – I think people will be more open to that. Yeah, I, agree, mind, I agree with you. I agree with that. It's never just, mind the house. Look at the factories. Look at the environments. Wasn't there a Marmite factory fire years ago that knocked out all the Marmite in the UK for a long time? It was Branston Pickle. It was okay. December. It was atrocious. There was, you know, there you was see? Branston Pickle fear, shortage fears. And did you see yesterday there was in the, in the UK there was a, a truck crash? This is actually a positive thing. The guy wasn't injured, thank God. But it was Brussels sprouts all over the floor. And they did say there may be a shortage of Brussels sprouts now, which is not a bad thing. Okay. Okay, I'm going to move us on to the next one. Um, you also want to talk to us about insurance as a service, Leah. So can you start by telling us what you mean by insurance as a service and then... Right, so that's either the insurer, could also be an insure tech providing the underlying infrastructure as well as the licensing to develop insurance products. Um, so it's kind of similar to banking as a service, which I think we've seen quite a lot in 2019. <laughs> and I think in 2020, we'll see more insurers or also insure techs um, looking at that business model to kind of diversify their revenues and um, help the industry grow as a whole because it can often be difficult for smaller insure techs to get the licensing and the right infrastructure. But if they can work together with an established insurer that can provide all of that, I think it can be easier to develop new policies. Well, that's interesting enough. Um, that's what um, InsureTech UK is uh, is looking to work with um, Lloyds to create a vehicle that would um, support InsureTechs with balance sheet um, which is often uh, something which is quite hard to get by, and it would that would help overcome the problem we were mentioning earlier about how much harder it is to get insured as a as a full insurer than it is as a full mm. bank in the UK. Not that it's easy to get uh, a full banking license, but from what I understand, it is easier than trying to do it as an insurer. Mm. But the just on the, on the latter point, sorry, the duration it takes to become either an MGA, an AR, or a full carrier is probably not that much longer. The capital requirements are different, obviously than it takes to go work with a traditional carrier. So you could sit there and go, do we have two parallel tracks? Parallel track says, one says, let's go get our own um, paper and capability and capital provision. And parallel track two says, if that doesn't work or we can't get there quick enough, let's go work with an insurer at the same time. Who knows? Back to your prediction, sorry, earlier. 
yes, yes, and <laughs> three times at Christmas. Um, I, I love the whole insurance as a service thing. It goes back to the embedded and invisible conversations we've had for a long time, but I'm running into loads of brick walls with it from a regulation perspective. So I think whilst insurance almost becomes an API, you plug into the car, the factory, the house, the rental policy, um, we have to work with the regulator more so than we will the capital providers to work out how we make sure it still fits the needs and wants of clients and is fair. We don't penalise uh, vulnerable customers. Mm. I mean, I think, sorry, I was just going to say that we do see that more in the US. So Lemonade in particular has an API that means you can plug Lemonade into other products and services should you so wish to. So uh, You can do that with social too. Yeah. So I think, <laughs> sorry. Who? Was that a shameless plug? <laughs> An API plug, mate. <laughs> oh. um, we're starting to see it. My point is there is evidence of it starting to happen. Sorry, David, you want to... No, no worries. And, and the point on insurance as a service, it's always like a, a big thing. I think if it's you end up building the same product as the traditional product, but you're just platforming them, I think there is no real value. So it's what type of innovative and useful product for the end consumer do you build with those platforms and how do you secure distribution for them? So we see a lot of startups that are doing platforms for whoever wants to build an insurance product. And you find out that some of the product they build are just a, a similar product to a PNC product that you would find from an existing car, and I don't see much value into this. There's no innovation, is there? They yeah, haven't changed yeah. any way. I guess the flip side to look at it is if you're a direct carrier, let's look at Geico in North America, they spend $2 billion a year on advertising. So that's $2 billion they could go elsewhere, either lower premiums if they're pushing out through a different channel. All right. We're going to move on to David's predictions now. Um so the first one is life tech will drive more investment, becoming a hot investment segment within the insure tech space as innovation is playing catch up versus what's happened in the P&C space. Um, so to start with, can you sort of unpack that a little bit? What is life tech or what do you mean by it? What's your I think it's a very self-fulfilling prediction. Because <laughs> <laughs> is this a shameless <laughs> plug? <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think we're seeing it uh, in the US even more than uh, in Europe. And, and life tech is is about all the innovation that goes around uh, life insurance and health, which has not been uh, a sector where we've seen a lot of innovation. I mean, PNC uh, has been a very dynamic sector. Uh, we've been working in InsurTech for a while with a life spin, but not much is happening. But I see a shift when I speak to investors, when I speak to even startups in the UK, there are some very good ones that are doing very interesting things. Um, and I see VCs trying to find an angle to invest in that market and they will find one. We need just more startups to to build proper value proposition in that space. Does this link a little bit back to Leah's prediction of using technology to sort of be predictive with insurance? So with health and life crossover, we, you know, the obvious example there is, is sort of wearable devices and, and being technology that can so, measure Yeah, ongoing. so that's, I mean, you can disrupt underwriting, uh, claim management, distribution. There are many components of the value chain in a sector that is so dated you can't even imagine. We are talking about legacy systems. I mean, in the life space, it's crazy. Um, so well, The cycle is like seven years in property and casualty in what 13 to 20 years cycles yes, it's, in, it's, it's, in uh, life everything takes longer and mm. the pricing is not very sophisticated uh, iot and data is everywhere but it's barely used for underwriting so there are many different points that you can but i think people sorry sarah i think people care more and will be impacted quicker with a real-time view of the hey by doing these things you can extend your life by doing x y or z whereas if it's just stuff that we own it's less valuable yeah potentially yeah 
All, well, the, stuff that you own, yeah. the thing is about the stuff that you own, I think part of what David's saying is actually there's been quite limited about an event, innovation, true innovation around the the way we actually are covering and ensuring um, lives, not on, on the property side. And I think um, whilst there's been lots of different, um, as you mentioned, Sarah, earlier, a lot of distribution plays, um, and as David was alluding in his previous response, actually there's a lot of platforms just shoving old products and there's nothing, there are not many of us out there really trying to change the paradigm and change the the, the actual solution that is provided to the consumer. No, there's very few. We just, we've no. just digitised the whole world at best. Yeah, I think that the life insurance, so we've had a couple of guests on here who sort of say, well, you think insurance is slow, you want to try life insurance. <laughs> and I find it interesting that the different areas within insurance can be behind each other, if that makes sense. If you say insurance is behind retail banking and then you get into insurance and there are so many different types, you end up with, it sounds to me like life insurance appears to be at the bottom of the pile. Yeah. Even Dylan is frustrated with Anorak when he tries to buy a, a life insurance because he doesn't find it digital enough. You so. just reminded me, both of you guys were on the show last time together as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yes, we've been... We, Apparently we, we come as a pair. You, yeah. can only have, you can only have two Frenchmen at a time. So, we can't have one. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go on to the next prediction. Um, so that is that bank assurance in the UK is making a comeback through the use of platforms and technology with neobanks showing the way to tier one players. Yes. And uh, you look at uh, you, continental Europe, distribution of insurance, 50% go through banks. I mean, 50 to 70%. I mean, UK, depending on the segment, is below 30%. And I don't see any reason why. Um, and I think it's it's mostly related to the use of technology and how banks embrace this those new platforms to distribute. I'm talking big banks. I think you're right. Digital disruptors are showing the way. Uh, but to make it uh, a real push, we'll need Deloitte and the Barclays to adopt it. Well, Lloyd's working with Trove, of course, on their white label product. So they're sort of inching in that direction. But it's, it's that's a slightly different model. Um, why does bank assurance disappear in the UK? Why is it so much more popular in Europe? Regulation. PPI. Um, that was not a good uh, experience for the banks. And I think there's also, at the moment, interestingly enough, I think there's a uh, a review of the FCA about the uh, the bundling of bank accounts. And so if you're then required to have insurance um, being sold separately, uh, so you, you need to be able to unbundle your premium bank account, that suddenly opens up a whole bunch of problems because then you don't have the volumes, which are certain, and as a result, the pricing. And so that then makes the kind of banque assurance model a bit more uh, tricky. But banks, banks wants to sorry to to no, go back to it. go back to commission uh, type revenue, so they need to find a way to make it work. With a, in a low interest rate economy, uh, they, they need to find an, an alternative ways to make money. I was I was just trying to find my predictions from last year or the year before because I did actually have bank assurance in. Um, I can't find the actual year I did it. Is it not necessarily down to regulation? Is it not more down to the fact that footfall in banks used to be brilliant and now it's non-existent? So the people going into banks aren't really the right sort of people to go buy insurance, although I all agree that there's a resurgence, but I'd almost go digital bank insurance through challenger banks, existing big brands of capability through distribution, but the footfall of branches, I'll revert to Sarah and the FinTech Insiders team to go, they'll, you know, they'll tell you if it's good people, bad people, or no people go through the branches these days. Yeah, I but I don't think bank insurance has to be through a branch, right? It is just banks selling insurance. Well, yeah. well traditionally it did. It, it, it didn't have to, but traditionally that was the, if you've got someone in the branch, 
or the uh, the, the facility, then sell them everything you got. So, I mean, I, I think I agree with David in that it's already making a comeback. It's clearly making a comeback. So when you look at kind of the, the partners that um, and, and the mar- partners that the neobanks have and the marketplace you know, op- options that they have, almost all of them have gone with at least one insurer to start with. Um, and now, granted, these are largely the, the startups, the, in, the insure techs of this world. But there's sort of no reason why it can't go both ways as well. You know, the, the larger banks can sell the insure techs products and the, the smaller banks could sell the larger insurance products, should they wish to. So, so I, I completely agree on that aspect. So I suppose what I was talking about was more about the kind of the bundled packages. Um, which oh, is, a which premium is, account that comes is, with life yeah, insurance. which is slightly different to uh, actually the kind of just uh, cross-selling um, insurance, which is taking place. I mean, Starling um, does it, um, and uh, and others. Are I was just logging into my Starling account to see exactly who they've got. I think, from memory, it's obviously you guys. Obviously, um, that's Social and Anorak for those listening, um, and people like Churchill and Axis. So there's a whole host of both new providers and existing large people mm-hmm. in the mix. So they can cover everything from gadget through life, through travel, through car. It's, it's, I mean, it's already happening. So I think I think you're onto a winner there, um, Dylan. Onto you. Uh, so the first one is auto renewals banned due to dual pricing, as it mostly affects the vulnerable populations. So again, can you unpick this one a little bit for us? Yeah. So <clears throat> as you, so actually, I, I decided to go and be a bit of a dull one and actually look at um, the kind of the market shifts that could be taking place, uh, r- rather than kind of general trends of that we can all agree on broadly. Um, the So it's more about regulation. Um, you know, everyone hates regulation, but actually it does create opportunities uh, whenever there's any um, a, any shift. One of the things that uh, the FCA is uh, reviewing quite, uh, quite seriously is a dual pricing um, issue. And so in particular, effectively having a higher price when you renew, um, for so basically penalizing loyal customers. And what they have... Uh, identified is that typically it is the more vulnerable uh, people who are less likely to go back and do uh, go back to market to try and find a better price and therefore they get sanctioned. Um, and so um, they are looking at possibly, and I don't know where, where they'll land on it, but they could be um, stopping the auto renewal. And that actually could be a real problem for many, uh, and it's not just uh, for any insurer, frankly, um, especially considering you've got 3DS and the new 3DS coming in. So it's 3D Secure. Yeah, 3D Secure, which basically means that, you know, you get a text message from your bank to confirm that you're wanting to make that transaction. Um, and, and you that, think, wait, I didn't know I was making that transaction every year or whatever <laughs> it is, because people do forget. Yeah. Um, but there, but it also means that. I mean, if you, but then if you're having no auto renewal, it's like you're not even aware, or you wouldn't get, and you you basically have to go out and buy it again, and so then suddenly the cost of acquisition becomes incredibly expensive because you're having to reacquire a customer every single year. So th- this could be quite. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think there's so as a whole for the industry, it could be quite uh, uh, quite a problem. I think from the insurtech perspective, um, I think there's a good case to actually say that we, we, the people that we kind of, well, first of all, we don't tend to be dual, dual pricing because there's very little human interaction typically. So you don't call up and say, hey, I've got a price, better price elsewhere. And I'll go, okay, then I'll change that pricing and I'll bring it back down again. Um, so it's more systematized and therefore uh, less likely to have that situation. But also, um, I think there's also an argument why InsureTech might actually be, um, in, in doing so, actually being less likely to be 
um, addressing kind of vulnerable people um, and I, abusing them. I, I, this, this is what I'm super passionate about. It was back in October, the FCA came out with their report. Uh, Gillian Guy, the chief exec of CAB, Citizens Advice Bureau, came out and said, um, it's great to see the FCA acknowledging that the insurance market isn't working, which I flatly denied and said, I don't think that's a, a th- things a step too far. It was all predicated on, on an article that's, um, on the BBC that said a lady called Diane saw her home insurance premium go up um, to ten, sorry, two thousand pounds over ten years from not changing, and it goes back to two words: unable and uncomfortable in, in looking around. Well, it's also you have to negotiate. It's not even just looking around. A lot of the time, you actually have to get on a telephone and speak to somebody. The same with um, broadband. You know, there was a, uh, a survey out this week which said that you know seventy-five percent of broadband suppliers will give you a cheaper price if you get on the phone and tell them you're going to leave. So, which means that they automatically have those cheaper prices. But that whole un- unable and uncomfortable. If I'm my for the first time. <laughs> Ever. Again, mum has listened to this, so she won't mind. Um, for the first time ever, mum's what, 77-ish, came round and asked for help with her car insurance because she got stuck because of a complexity where else. I went through it and I thought, God, this is the first stage in them not understanding or mum not understanding what she's always done on an aggregate. I think she's quite savvy, but for, for the first time it just perplexed her. Imagine doing that for every single product you have. Bear in mind we have anything between five and 17 products in a household. It's a lot of things to do. So I think not in sure tech, although could be, technology could save the day here for everyone to say, if I'm an existing client and I fall into the vulnerable or potentially vulnerable category, that no one wants to be in that category, by the way, Maybe we do on their behalf and say, did you know, Diane, you could get a cheaper policy elsewhere. We can't write it for you, but it exists in the marketplace. Would you like ours at this rate or would you like to go elsewhere? Or the regulator puts a cap on how much more it can be from the price at any one point. So I think we kind of all agree that something needs to happen there. But I'm going to move this on to the next prediction and I'm going to let everybody speak before Nigel on this one. So the statement is Brexit is good for InsureTech. This came from Dylan. Do you want to give us your reasoning first? And then I'm going to ask Leah and David to give their opinions. And, and then, Nigel, we can come to you. Yeah. So I Try think, not to burst. So I think it's, um, whilst it does um, lead to some challenges with regards to funding, um, because UK being independent of Europe then suddenly looks like you're, uh, you've got more complications to actually um, grow, um, internationalize. But the, at the same time, it does mean that um, UK, I mean, first of all, we're kind of, I think the UK insurtech is um, streams ahead of what in terms of the innovation taking place rather than you find on continental Europe or the US. And what we will um, likely have as benefit uh, is having, um, there are opportunities that the government can then apply both in terms of support of industries as well as uh, considering um, regulation and um, uh, basically infrastructure to support um, the, the insurtech, which really deserves to be um, at the forefront. And so I think that's why it's probably a good thing. I mean, notwithstanding the fact that I think as a nation, we're going to have to come together and be um, uh, and be supporting local businesses. And so um, that means UK InsurTech should be um, <laughs> kind of favoured over um, international ones coming in. Okay. David? 
Uh, I can't agree with that. But uh, so I think Brexit is bad and is bad as well for insurtech. How <laughs> um, many reasons? First, because we don't want to build a UK insurtech business, but we want to build a global one. And we'll go uh, outside the UK at some point and we expect people to be receiving us as well as uh, they would expect to be received in the UK. And the second thing is we constantly hire people. Um, and the best people are not uh, always, um, although uh, we, we love British uh, people, <laughs> and they yeah, come from careful. everywhere. They, they, they come from everywhere, <laughs> and they should be able to come here and and, and work for for startup like Social and uh, and Anorak. And um, yes, as an entrepreneur, you you want more. Um, I mean, you you want people to be protected, but you want to make sure that the, the business can grow uh, without too much boundaries. Okay, Leah. Yeah, I mean, as a German, it's hard to agree with something that says Brexit is good for anything. <laughs> but um, yeah, I feel like also in terms of like tech talent innovation in general, I think Brexit might not necessarily be the best thing um, for the country. And also we've already seen that Lemonade expanded to Germany instead of the UK, which is obviously not as good for competition here. And um the founder of Lemonade, I think, said that Brexit was giving him the heebie-jeebies. Um, yeah, he's not the only one. <laughs> and I feel like we might see more more startups thinking that way and might not shut up, set up shop in the UK, but thinking of other countries. So yeah, generally, probably not as good for innovation. Okay. <laughs> Nigel, very quickly, your thoughts. I have to agree with um, David and Leah. I'm an Irishman, as we highlighted at the beginning. I won't comment on whether it's good or bad, but if I look at what legacy insurers are spending on shifting or and on banks on shifting trading bases outside the UK to be able to do business outside of the country and globally it's a fortune and that puts a bigger risk in my mind on the insurtechs that can't afford to go do that so as soon as you want to go to the Netherlands as announced by Toby at Lacquer this week or or last week and a bunch of others that incurs more costs than it would have done previously which is a bad thing in my mind for companies that are cash trapped at the outset equally the attraction of talent whilst we haven't seen too much of a slowdown just worries me so again like David and Leah as a European I know you're French in fact even Emmanuel Marcon said this week um Whilst you're leaving the EU, you're not leaving Europe. It took three years to get there, but he said it. <laughs> well, a visionary I think, man. <laughs> I think I, I would like to be as optimistic as Dylan is, and I do see that there is potential for some of those things to happen. But given what's happened so far, I just don't think that it will be prioritised enough for us to see the benefits anytime soon. But I'm going to move this on to Nigel. I'm going to read Nigel's, and I'm going to get him to explain it. Many go out of business and collaborations slow down. Like, so Hannah asked me, where's Hannah? Hannah asked me for like bullet points. So I literally gave her bullet points. Uh, Insurtex, insurers, just people generally? Just people generally. No, so I think actually <laughs> I am worried, again, back to the previous point about um, Brexit and EU and everything else. I am worried uh, about the speed of the carriers in which they collaborate with. So I've said, I think a number of insurtex will see go out of business this year coming. Unfortunately, I, I don't want to see it. We had a few go down um, and close the doors this year. And I think we'll have more next year just because of speed. And I think collaborations will slow down because insurers are starting to work out how to do it themselves. So that's my prediction. Good luck <laughs> to them. Yeah, the garage is a great example. Do you want to explain that example? Well, Aviva had to shut down the uh, garage, uh, which was where they were doing themselves the innovation. 
it's not shut at all. It's still there in Hoxton Square with a bunch of people. And if you look at the stuff that's come out of it, which is all online, is pretty impressive stuff for an organisation that's 300 plus years old. Leah, did you want to? Yeah, I think with the first part, definitely would have to agree that some insurtechs will fail because that's just the nature of startups. And I think we've seen it quite a bit in the fintech space more generally this year. So I see, feel like this could definitely happen next year in the insurtech space. The second part, not entirely sure how fast the incumbents will figure it out themselves, but could quite possibly happen. I want to add acquisitions to this. I feel like that that is going to be a big part as well. So the middle ground to me is acquisitions. And whether those acquisitions are successful or not, I, I wouldn't <laughs> comment at this stage because it takes an awful lot to acquire a company. Even if you're doing like, you know, an acquihire where you just want the people, getting those people to come within your organization and continue to perform as well as they may have done in a startup is incredibly difficult. It can be done. It's incredibly difficult. Or even if you just want the technology, again, bringing that in and incorporating that into your um, portfolio into your existing systems is incredibly difficult. Yeah. I think to Nigel's point, I think the confidence that uh, insurers have in building themselves is growing. It doesn't mean that they know how to do it, but I think they, some of them are more, are more confident that they can challenge innovation it, from It goes back to Sarah's second point about platforms and systems, actually. And I think if they acquire to your addition to this, which I totally agree with, actually, if they acquire, they'll acquire for the right reasons. It might, might not just be acquihire, it might be acquihire and platforms when it's built. Okay, well, because I, I think your first one links to the second one we have for you here, Nigel, which is stop trying to do things internally and build externally. And then you put Poncho as a great example. I read this as Pongo to begin with. I thought it was the dog from Under One Dalmatians. I was like, he's lost it. He's finally lost it. You know it. I've lost it a long time ago. Can you please explain what Poncho is and then how that um, is a great example of the prediction you have? So the prediction is actually about legacy or incumbent insurers, I think they are, for a while, and we've seen a few innovation teams now being closed down with the garages and whatever else. So again, as I say, garages not shut down, but other divisions have shut down with us, commercial carriers or, or whatever else have shut down their innovation teams and they've stopped trying to innovate from the inside out. What they've now realised, and Poncho is an Australian insurer, it's a, a brand under IAG in Australia, it's the second largest insurer down there. Uh, Phil Wilson brand, Marcus Farrell and the team have done a brilliant job of taking a team and innovating on the edge. They've literally taken a different building, a different ca a capability, a different complex, a whole separate team and just gone and done it. And I think that freedom, the the permission from the board, the support from their CEO and the rest of the business has been pretty impressive. But they haven't been bound by the legacy, it's not fair to say, um, by the incumbent or existing DNA. So they've got to, they've got to run red lights. They've got stuff done in a different way. And I think Poncho's could be a really cool, um, it's today's motor insurance brand, but it could be anything going forward. And what they've built from a technology stack and everything else, in my mind, is as good as as many other um, insurance carriers going forward. So that's kind of what we, well, not kind of, we've seen a lot of that in, in banking. We've seen a lot of the big banks stand up new banking brands on separate technology stacks, um, you know, as a way of a couple of things. One, usually to capture market share, but also to test those new systems out on a small, uh, you know, uh, on a small group of customers or with a new brand. And then if it works, either transition customers across to the, the new technology stack or or raise that one up and bring the other one down. Um, I, I, we don't have to go as far as Australia. It's happened here in the UK, in Cardiff, Admiral, with Wego. Ah, is that how you say that? I thought it was Vigo. Oh, wow. Admiral, is Admiral, isn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. As, as somebody who spends an awful lot of time in Cardiff, I'm aware of Admiral. I didn't know if they'd built it on a separate technology platform. That's really interesting. What we're waiting to see in the banking world is how successful these these brands are, because what we've had in the banking world is a lot of um, near banks who can who can compete with them and who got there first. But I don't think we've necessarily seen the full stack insurers in the insurance industry who would put present that kind of competition in the way that, say, Monzo did to NatWest's bow, to, to Vigo. I don't know. Germany. So we Fox I, said, is, I just said the UK. <laughs> Germany, that European country in the same island. Sorry, I missed that piece. <laughs> you, we've seen that happen in Germany, yes. And we Fox raised 110 million last year, last week, week before last. It's pretty impressive, right? So who's we Fox's parent company? It's WeFox. Oh, it's WeFox. It's a startup. Yeah, it's oh, so not it's a startup anymore. But it's the full stack. It's the whole thing. Well, they they actually merged with another startup, wasn't it? Nip. One. 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 Thank you. Sorry. They acquired them. So uh, two together. Back to your Brexit point. They were going to launch in the UK, but again, in the article, article in the Telegraph, they talked about being worried about Brexit. Right. Sorry, I misunderstood. I thought you were saying WeFox was an example of somebody that had been stood up as a brand. But no, in terms of the full stack competition. It is coming, but I, my point would be that it has been a lot slower. I okay, think. can I just ask, so what is problematic for UK InsurTech not to have a WeFox with 100 million um, in their back pocket coming in, into the UK? What's problematic? Do you mean do you mean for them to expand here, or do you mean why haven't we got our own version no, of well, that? No, that, well, that's, that's a separate question, okay. which actually also uh, I think is a very pertinent question. But it's not, you can't think that it's a great thing for UK InsurTech to be having to compete with a player which has got 100 million in their back pocket. Right, so why can't UK InsurTechs attract that volume of, of, of investment? Well, that's a very good question. And I think that's just fun. And that's why I started off my point of saying, whilst there's a problem around funding, and it remains a problem around funding in the UK, I think um, that there are benefits to the fact that, in a way, it safeguards us for a short period of time until they finally come in. <laughs> very short period of time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, I, you can't see on the podcast, but I can get a very small violin out here very quickly. I'm, I'm going to pause it there because I'm going to, because it's Christmas, let Nigel talk about scooters. I, I can't actually believe I predicted this. I wrote to Hannah saying, I might include this, I might not. Um, and someone's going to shoot me and you're going to hold it against me for the entire next year. But I generally believe scooters will find a way to take off. I don't mean like hoverboards. I mean, as we know, they're illegal in the UK and many other countries. They are an eyesore. They're a litter all over France and everywhere else. But given how the rise and rise of these things is happening, whether they've been sold in retail stores or online, I suspect, and we've seen quite a few policies already throughout Europe, I suspect we'll work out a way to make them legal in the UK and as a net result, a new opportunity for insurtechs or insurers, and we will likely see more of them on our streets, unfortunately. So I, we all know how I feel about scooters. Nigel and I, one of the very few things we do agree on is the, the awfulness of e-scooters. Um, but I, I kind of, I also agree with the point that, that they will find a way to make it work. And the way, the reason that they will find a way to make it work is because there's money to be made. So, you know, not only will these companies make money, but cities, towns and streets will find ways to levy taxes or fees or, you know, I, I'm, I'm fully behind the idea that if you have one of these things, you should be riding it in a cycle lane, you should be um, insured. 
Uh, and in the same way, I actually think people who ride bicycles should be insured, but that's a whole other conversation. But I, I think, you know, you should be insured. There should be a way to track you in case something goes wrong. You know, if you drive a car, you have to have insurance and you have to have a license plate. So why shouldn't you if you're uh, using any other kind of uh, street street vehicle? Um, but I think that, that will they'll find a way to make that happen. In the same way, they found a way to make drones happen, right? Yeah. In fact, they created a drone registry. We haven't quite got as far as forcing them to have insurance yet. But if they can find a way to... to benefit of it I think that you have to have insurance it. it's a commercial part obviously um, but I, I'm, I'm it, it will come it, it's if you look at where the big money's going from a mobility perspective electric bikes are here already so now we can't even pedal we just got to press a button and we're off and they're not bad they're not brilliant and personally again I like to cycle um, but I think we'll find a way to make this happen and actually having used them in the past and I shouldn't really admit that either once or twice I know don't roll your eyes um they are actually really handy and they're better. Back to the point about taxis in London. The taxis in London are terrible sometimes. So, so why do you take them then? Because it was wet. <laughs> I didn't get my umbrella out. Does they're anybody, more eco-friendly. Did, did anybody else have any thoughts about e-scooters? Has anyone used them? Come on, David, you've used yes, them. Yes, as a Parisian, you, you use them when you're in Paris. They are extremely dangerous all over the place and highly regulated now, which for a... Parisians or scooters? <laughs> <laughs> Parisians on scooters. The combination of the two is just... Yeah. Hannah, Hannah, who is our producer, put her hand up there. Did you ride an e-scooter at home or in the UK? So Hannah is, is from Sweden and she says they're huge in Sweden and Denmark, so she's ridden them there. Leah, any e-scooter experiences you'd like to share with no, the group? No, never. I was just in Paris though this weekend and I couldn't believe how many e-scooters there were and I do hope they won't make it to the UK, but I think they it's will. It's inevitable. <laughs> I think so. I'm but, not sure it is though. Come on, Dylan. Why? Well, I think I'm the, I'm the, I'm the one who's actually bringing controversy here this, this today. So I, I'm delighted. Um, <laughs> yes, there's money to be made. And yes, there's going to be um, lobbying money that will be at play. But ultimately, there is a duty for safety for citizens. And look, bikes are have been problematic for a number of years. They don't have number plates. So that's not going to happen. And um, e-scooters, um, even where you, even if you were to be able to have a number plate, where on earth would you put it? And would it be big oh, enough to be read? It doesn't have and to be so, like a number plate, but a way of registering. Well, no, but, it's, it's, I mean, that, but then the thing is, it is about being on the road and obeying the kind of the, um, the rules of the road. And I think that's where the issue lies. Um, you can get away with uh, a lot of things and not necessarily in a safe way. Um, and you, 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 know, you can get away from it, the problems very quickly. So it's probably not why the there will be an enthusiasm to try and legalise them. But they're tracked soon. already. I mean, they're all um, and also the manufacturers based. are not going to be based in the UK, <laughs> most likely. No, that seems unlikely given our <laughs> earlier conversation. Right, I'm, I'm going to call it there. We we can take the scooter conversation offline before before things get heated. Um, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much to everyone for joining me. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you, Leah? Uh, on Twitter at Leah Nunninger. Perfect. David, how about you? Anorag.life. Dylan? We are so sure. And Nigel? At Nigel Walsh on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. That wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you to all of my guests, to Leah, to David, to Dylan, and of course to Nigel. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders or our 11FS LinkedIn page. That is 11 colon FS. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, which you can find on Spotify and your other podcast providers. Also, we're relaunching the 11FS newsletter. 
So we want to give you, the financial services community, the disruptors and the curious thinkers, a snack-sized roundup of the biggest stories of the week. Every Friday, you'll receive a summary in our 11FS style, along with interesting blogs and so much more straight to your inbox. If you're not a subscriber, do sign up today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletter. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you all for listening. This was the final episode of 2019. From all of us at 11FS, we would like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We'll be back again next year with more insights, news and great, great guests. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>